untucked. Woo! I earned this shirt. All right, my guys in the back. Hey, I learned this week, Dr. Pepper is the number one drink of 17 and 18 year old guys. We could not keep it in the house. Uh, followed by Coke and sweet tea. Um, we had a great time. It was great to have the, the juniors and seniors at our house this weekend. And the Disciple Now, Wake Up Weekend, as we call it now, is, is such an important time. It's a fun time, but it's a significant time in building fellowship and building uh, our spiritual core and uh, learning how to talk and to visit and to understand Scripture and to apply it to life. And uh, so I'm excited that we as a church support that and that we have host families that are willing to, to open their homes to, uh, to strange kids. Not that any of you are strange, right? Um, I'm thankful we have families that are, are willing to make brownies and cookies and bring food to help support those families. We had some wonderful brownies and cookies that were brought to our house. And how do I know that? <laughs> We had to sample them before we gave them to those young men, right? We had to make sure they were good. But uh, uh, I appreciate a church of, of our senior adults that are willing to open their homes for uh, the teenagers to come over and just to have conversations and to share life stories and, and spiritual uh, markers in their lives and to encourage our teenagers. You know, at the end of the Luke account, which is we're getting ready to start a series in Luke, uh, of the, the birth narratives and the story of Jesus as a child. It says that, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and knowledge before God and man. And that's really what our call and our command is with our children and youth, is to nurture and raise them up so that they grow in favor with God, certainly, but also in favor with each other and with their neighbors. And so as we begin this series on uh, who is my neighbor, it's a significant time for us as a church to step back and to begin to ask those important questions of who is my neighbor? Now there's a couple of tensions that we have to be careful about because on the one hand, I think we would all acknowledge, well, everyone's my neighbor. We, we know the end of the story. But the danger is that if everyone is your neighbor then a lot of times no one is your neighbor. And so we're going to talk certainly about what does it mean to be a neighbor in this world and, and some of those big uh, picture questions. But we're also going to ask the question, what does it mean to be a neighbor? How about in your neighborhood? How many of you know the names of every person that your house touches? I don't. And so are we good neighbors where God has put us to live incarnationally? And so we're going to talk about some of those kinds of things. And, and we're going to really explore this idea of what does it mean to be a neighbor in our community, in our church, in our world. But before we do that, I have a little quiz for us. Now, we need to understand that, that Christians aren't the only ones that talk about being good neighbors, right? Being a good neighbor is foundational to to the societies and the cultures of the world. In fact, did you know that in this culture, in our U.S. of A. American society, that we have a great emphasis on being a neighbor amongst our children's programs? So we have a little quiz here to see how musical you are today. And I'm not going to sing, but if you all break out in singing, I'll just keep going. See if you can name that program. 
What program, this is for the old timers, begins with, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Mr. Rogers, right? A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? I mean, we grew up watching that. I mean, that was, I mean, that was before cable, anything. I mean, that was, Mr. Rogers was like must-see TV about 45 years ago. I don't know about your family, but it wasn't mine. Um, how about this one? Who are the people in your neighborhood? The people that you meet when you're walking down the street each day. Sesame Street, right? Another staple, right? You got, you got Sesame Street in the morning, you got Mr. Rogers in the evening, and that was a good day. Um, but again, these are our foundational kids programs that we all grew up with, talking about the importance of being a good neighbor. All right, last one. This is for the newer generation. Oh, I'm looking around my neighborhood, and what do I see? Anybody got it yet? Some houses and cars and kids like me. Someone help me. What's, dude, do you know what, what store? What show? No? All right. Oh, I'm looking around my neighborhood, and what do I see? Some houses and cars and kids like me. I mean, it sounds like Barney, doesn't it? That's my best Barney interpretation. <laughs> Come on. Where's, where's our Barney fans? Do we have any Barney fans left in the world today? There we go. There's a Barney fan. All right. But isn't that, isn't that fascinating that even our culture understands and knows that being a neighbor is a good thing. In fact, we need to teach our children how to be good neighbors. And so what I would say, as those who follow Christ, how much more do we need to understand and practice being good neighbors? And so this morning we start with, with what I think is the foundational text in the New Testament of calling us to be neighbors. And there's a couple of places where you can go to, to study this particular passage. In fact, it's, it's delivered in a couple of different contexts. One in Matthew, but we're going to focus in Luke chapter 10. And our guys have already read that text for us, so we won't reread it, but we'll certainly follow it and, and use that as our outline for today. Um, but again, it's, it's a foundational and seminal question for life, for culture, for the way that we treat and live with each other and live next to each other and how we engage each other across different barriers that we would, would have in life and in our culture and in the world that we live. So turn to Luke chapter 10 and you can follow along. And in this te text, in this context, Jesus is approached by a lawyer, I suspect some other religious leaders. And the text tells us right off the bat, we begin in verse 25, it tells us right off the bat that the, the purpose of this lawyer is, is to trick Jesus, is to, is to get Jesus in a, in a conversation that's kind of a, a no-win conversation. So there's, there's maybe some animosity, there's at minimum some tension, there's a desire on this lawyer's part to, to, to ask a question so that Jesus loses face and credibility with the crowd. And so the lawyer approaches Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, does that question sound familiar? I hope so, because 
I think it's eight chapters later, in Luke chapter 18, it's the exact same question that the rich young ruler um, asked Jesus. And, and I'm not saying they're the same person, but, but what I'm saying is that this is a, an important, significant question that people are asking, and particularly young folks, I think, want to know these, the answer to this question. I'll never forget, I was a, a pastor in, in, uh, it, uh, in Texas, and I had a father with two young children come up to me. He was a single dad, and he was just getting involved in our church, and he, he took me out to lunch one day. Before we got to lunch, he, he pulled over there and he said, okay, pastor, he said, I just want to cut to the chase. He said, all I want to know is what do I have to do for me and my girls not to go to hell? Just give me the list. Give me the things I need to check off and we'll do them. It, isn't that the same question? What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's, there's something about who we are that acknowledges and recognizes and realizes that there's something beyond this life. There's, there's something beyond just the present. There, there is a future. There's an eternity. And so I think the question that, that, that all cultures and all peoples ask at some level is what must I do to participate and to be a part of eternity? What must I do to participate and be a part of heaven? And so this is the question that the, the lawyer brings before Jesus and asks. And isn't it interesting what, what Jesus says? Okay, lawyer, he's with religious leaders, he, he, he knows the law. Okay, well, what does the law say? Why don't, why don't you tell me what you think? I think that's a pretty good response. What do you think? T tell me what you think. I suspect that if you were to ask your, your neighbors, what do you have to do to have eternal life? What do you have to do to live forever? What do you have to do to go to heaven one day? I suspect that all of our friends and neighbors would have an answer to that question. I suspect that their question would be just like what the lawyer said. Well, you know, you, you, you do good. You do what's right. You love God, you love other people, you just, you just be a good person. In fact, there's scripture that lead us and point us in that direction. And so the lawyer quotes from the Old Testament. And he puts together two Old Testament passages, texts there, that over a period of the generations have become to be understood as, as one teaching, as one text, but they come from a di different places. The first one is found in, in uh, Deut excuse me, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. This is called the Shema, and what the Shema says is that we are to love God with all that we are. We're to love God with our, our heart, with our, our soul, with our strength. In fact, the Shema was so ingrained into the life of, of the Jewish people that twice a day. They would recite it, that twice a day they would offer it as their prayer and as their confession to God. Here it is in its entirety. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And so the lawyer is acknowledging, is remembering back to the law, and he says, okay, well, here's what the law says we're to do to inherit eternal life. We're to love God with all that we are. And he uses a, the, the phrase in the translation, it's heart and soul and strength and mind. With everything that we are, we are to love God. But the lawyer continues, and he says, and, and we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Well, that's a passage. The, to love your neighbor as you love yourself comes from the book of Leviticus. If, if you have your text and you want to look over there, it's Leviticus chapter 19. And start in verse 9. Now, it's interesting as, as we begin to talk about how do you treat your neighbor, that as you read these passages, there's lots of prohibitions. In other words, it says, don't do this to your neighbor, and don't do this to your neighbor, and don't do this to your neighbor. So as we read verses 9 through the first part of 18, the passage says, this is how you're to not treat people. You're to not treat people, first of all, by, by not taking a full harvest so that they can come behind you and, and pick up the leftovers, especially the poor. You're to, to not treat people in this way. You're to... Not steal. You're to not deal falsely with them. You're not to lie to them. You're not to oppress people. You're not to rob from people. You're not to do injustice to people. You're not to slander people. You're not to hate people. You're not to take vengeance upon other people. You're not to bear a grudge against other people. And, and as you look there in, in Leviticus 19, those are pretty much listed out in order. Don't do this to other people. Don't do this to your neighbor. Don't do this. But then we get to the end of verse 18. In the book of Leviticus, the law sums up this way to treat neighbor in one brief sentence. It says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so like I said, now that we get to the New Testament, we have the, the combination of these two truths and these two principles. In fact, Jesus says that these two ideas and concepts summarize all the Old Testament. If you want to know what the Old Testament says, and you, you don't want to read it all, which I encourage you to read it all, but, but if you want the, the brief review and summary, the Old Testament says to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That summarizes the Old Testament. And so Jesus and the lawyer by this time, that the teachings of, of Judaism by this time have come to that place where they've combined these two commandments so that when the lawyer is asked, what do you think, what do you think it takes to inherit eternal life? The lawyer says, and rightly so, you love God with all that you are and you treat your neighbor and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now as we step back for a few moments, one of the things that this passage tells us is that we are created... To be loved. And we are created to love. We are created to be loved by God. And we are created to love God in return. And out of that incredible love relationship, then we are created to love other people. And that's, what, that's, that's how God designed life. That's how we are to live life. That is what eternal life will look like. Is an eternity of loving and being loved by God and of loving our neighbor, of loving 
each other. So the lawyer states this. And isn't it interesting what Jesus says? You're exactly right. Do this and you'll be saved. Do this and you'll have eternal life. Do this and you will live. Lawyer, you got it right on target. If you'll love God with all that you are, and if you'll love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to have eternal life. But there's a problem there, isn't there? The problem is that none of us can do that. None of us are perfect in loving God with all that we are. And none of us are perfect in loving our neighbor as ourself. And so Jesus has presented us in, in the lawyer with a difficult situation. Okay, this is what you have to do in order to inherit eternal life. But guess what? We, we can't do that. We all fall short. We are unable to love in this way by ourselves. The truth is, we do not love God with all of our being. And because we do not love God with all of our being, we struggle with loving our neighbor, and we also struggle with loving ourselves. It seems to me, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but for our purposes this morning, it, it seems to me that there's at least two reasons why we don't, we don't love God with all that we are. First of all, we don't love God with all that we are because we want to be God. Right? We want to be God. And so we love ourselves like we should love God. We love ourselves in a, in a very selfish way, in a very prideful way, in a very arrogant way. We love ourselves in a way that manipulates and tries to control and use other people to our advantage. We want to be God. And therefore, to acknowledge and to love God means that we have a problem. But there's another reason why we don't love God. It's the other thing. It's not out of our pride. It's not out of our arrogance. It's not out of our narcissism. It, it's, it's out of our own sense of, if you'll allow me to say, self-loathing. We don't love ourselves. And, and we don't have a full understanding that God loves us. And because we don't really buy into the truth and the fact that God loves us and God has forgiven us and God has redeemed us. And therefore, when we really understand and grasp that because we are not God, then we're able to begin to love ourselves. I think the greatest truth for any of us to know and to, to, to live out is that we are created as an incredible person in the image of God. God loves us so much. He didn't create us, create us because God needed to create us. God's creation of us is a complete and total overflow of his love. And so God loved each of us so much. We are uniquely and specifically and especially created in his image. 
And not only that, not only did God love us so much He created us, He loved us so much that when we messed it up, when we sinned and turned against God, that God loved us so much that even while we were sinners, He sent His Son to die for us and to redeem us and to bring us back into relationship with Him. And so if we can, we can accept that truth that we are loved by God and that we are redeemed and saved by God, if we can grasp and live that truth out, guess what? Then it makes loving ourselves a whole lot easier, doesn't it? Because if God can love me, then surely I can begin to learn to love myself. If God has forgiven me and given His Son up to die for me because I'm worthy of His love, because I'm created in His image, then guess what? Then I should be able to begin to walk in that path of self-forgiveness. The realization that God loves me and has called me to a life full of meaning and purpose and of love. I worked with students for 20 plus years, college and youth, and one of the, the, the most heartbreaking conversations I would have with a teenager was the conversation that, that began like this. Wade, I don't have any friends. Nobody likes me. I don't have any friends at school, and even here at church I don't have any friends. Why doesn't anybody like me? And the first question that I would, would work towards as we talk through that, one of the questions that we would work towards is, well, tell me how you feel about yourself. Do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? Not in an unhealthy way, but do you love yourself because God loves you? Do you love yourself because God's created you and He's he saved you and He's called you to himself, oh, but Wade, if you only knew what I had done, you'd know that God couldn't love me either. No, you don't understand. God loves you, period. God loves you and has, has created you and has redeemed you. You need to, to be assured and you need to stand firm on that truth. No matter what you've heard all of your life, no matter if your parents have told you you are a mistake and you don't know why you were born. No matter what, if everyone at school picks on you and bullies you and you're the brunt of all the jokes, no matter what other people say and, and have told you throughout your life, you need to stand firm on the reality that God loves you, period. And you are worthy to be loved. And because God loves you, then guess what? You can begin to love yourself. How tragic it is for us to, to come to this truth where we'd say, well, God may love me, but I don't love me. Well, if God loves you, how, and he knows everything, how can you not love yourself? And so we need to, some of us need to begin to brace this truth, embrace it and live it out, that God loves us, period. And because lo God loves us, we can love God. And because God loves us and we love God, then guess what? We can love ourselves. And out of that love, we can begin to love other people. Do this, and you will be saved. Love God with all that you are. Love yourself. And out of that healthy 
redemptive love that you've experienced from God. Learn to forgive yourself and learn to walk in that truth and be freed in that truth so that you can love other people and forgive them and redeem them and minister and nurture them. This is what eternal life will look like. But the truth is, is that we need help to get there. We need, we need Jesus. And so, knowing the difficulty of this, of this command and of this truth, to love God with all that we are, and to love your neighbor as yourself, this lawyer looks back at Jesus and goes, who's my neighbor? <laughs> because why? Because he knew he couldn't do those things. And so this lawyer begins to want to justify himself. Again, what we've got to understand, being a good neighbor is not about checking it off on a box. Boy, I was a good neighbor today. Check, boy, I'm in good standing with God. Being a good neighbor is who God has called us to be. It's who God has redeemed us to be. As a church, we're talking a lot about what are some ways we can begin to grow. And certainly being good neighbors is, is a way that we think is going to enable us to, to grow. But let me assure you, church, when we get to the point where we say, well, we were good neighbors today, check it off. That is not how you grow. You grow a fellowship and you grow a people by loving each other. And by being good neighbors to each other and being authentic with each other and loving God and loving yourself. And if we as a people can begin to grow in that truth and in that life that God has called us to, God's going to begin to, to allow and to introduce and bring people that need a good friend and a good neighbor to us. God's brought people in your own neighborhoods that need a good neighbor and a good friend. And God has put you there to begin that process of loving and nurturing them. But we all try to justify ourselves. We all want to say, well, if I can choose who my neighbor is, then I could be a good neighbor. You know, if Trenton's my neighbor, I'm going to be a good neighbor. Because I like Trenton. We get along. We're good buds. Boy, I got that one down. But oh, don't ask me to be a neighbor over here. You see, we try to justify ourselves. And today we must learn to quit justifying ourselves. We must learn that it's only through God's power that we can love God with all that we are. We have to learn that we can only love ourselves through God's power. We need to understand that only through Christ we can begin to love other people. In essence, today, we need to realize that we all fall short. So now listen to Luke as he begins to tell the story of the church and of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the question has shifted a little bit, although he's asking the same question. It's not, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question in Acts chapter 2 is, what must I do to be saved? The question in Acts chapter 16 is not what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is what must I do to be saved? And listen to the answers that are given in, by Luke in Acts chapter 2 and 16. In chapter 2, 
What must I do to be saved? Well, well, we repent. And we're baptized in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 16. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be saved. What must I do to be saved? Well, I I must repent. I must turn from this way of, of not loving the way that I should. And I must begin to believe. Believe in who Jesus is. And accept and receive that into my life. And then I must be baptized. And, and I would certainly not interpret that as a literal water baptism. Although water baptism is an important part of, of our expression of our faith. But I think what that, that picture of baptism means in that instance is it, it's, a, it's a putting ourselves underneath Christ. It's a submission to the Spirit of God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are baptized into Him. We are placed underneath Him as Lord and Savior. So what must I do to be saved? We must repent. We must believe. Be baptized in the name of Christ. You see how the change and the shift of doing takes place? What must I do? It's not a doing to achieve merit or accomplishment or to check something off a list. Rather, it's a doing that receives. It's a doing then after it receives, that does as an act of love and of gratitude. We can love God, we can love ourselves, and we can love our neighbor because God loves us and gave himself up for us. Church, we cannot justify ourselves. Eternal life is found only in Christ Jesus. We repent because we've loved other gods. We repent because we've tried to make ourselves a God. We repent because we've not loved ourselves in the appropriate way. We repent because we've certainly not loved our neighbor as we've loved ourselves. Again, we must quit trying to justify ourselves. And if we'll begin to live in that truth, in God's truth of love, what we'll discover is that eternal life is not just something that's way out there, but that eternal life is abundant life that we can experience and live today and each day following. So this morning, will you quit seeking to justify yourself? Instead, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Experience His love for the first time. If not, be renewed in the love of God. Over these next weeks, we will explore the meaning of the question, who is my neighbor? But today, today we must be sure that we love God with all that we are and that we're growing in that truth. And secondly, that we love ourselves because God created us. And because nothing can separate us from His love. And because He died and redeemed us. And now He invites us to experience eternal and abundant life today. You see, these are the two foundational truths that we must embrace and receive and begin to live out. If we truly want to begin to love our neighbor. Let's pray.